hop into uh, Doctor Who's TARDIS and we're going back in time to the early 70s when uh, many of you beloved listeners will well recall there were moratorium marches, inner city cafes, share houses and the rising tide of sexual liberation and uh, other countercultural phenomena. I remember it well because before I was uh, kidnapped and taken to Sydney against my will, I was a, a proud Melbourneian and it was a time of great social and political upheaval in that city, much of it centred in the then industrial streets of Carlton at the lefty La Mama Theatre, founded by my old friend Betty Burstall, and emerging from that, the great pram factory, then taken over by an avant-garde theatre collective called the Australian Performing Group. Now, the women working of the APG and the pram were increasingly frustrated by what they saw as the decidedly blokey atmosphere in the theatre world, where the emerging Aussie culture was very much focused on the ochre, a.k.a. the larrikin. So they decided to create their own play, Betty Can Jump. It was a reaction to what women were feeling in their personal and professional lives and the, the play's revelations, provocations, stunned audiences. It was produced by the Carlton Women's Liberation Group and directed by the powerhouse that is Kerry Dwyer, and I'm delighted to say that Kerry joins me in the studio, along with arts reviewer Kath Kenny, who to mark the 50th anniversary of the play has written a book about it called Staging a Revolution, When Betty Rocked the Pram. It's published by Upswell. Kath is also an associate member of the Centre for Media History. Kerry, can you believe it's 50 years? I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can actually because my daughter was born. I was pregnant through the whole process of making Betty Can Jump and she was born a few weeks after, so she just turned 50 last year. So, yes, I can believe it. <laughs> Kath, what drew you to write a book about this uh, particular and, yes, very significant play? I, I was writing a PhD when I first came across this story and I was looking at... Um, how at the time in 2017 women's stories were everywhere. The Me Too movement had um, started to become this international phenomenon. Women were writing about their stories online, in magazines and everywhere you turned. Women... And Jermaine was about to uh, publish Female Eunuch. Oh, in, in the 1970s, yes. Yeah. So I was interested in looking at how women in the second wave of feminism were telling their stories. And, I, and at that point, all I really knew of the second wave feminism were those great books, The Female Eunuch and Damned Whores and God's Police and The Battles for Abortion Rights and Equal Pay. I didn't realise there was this great cultural renaissance of women who made films and made plays and made bands, and that's how I discovered the women at the Pram Factory, um, who I hadn't I'd heard of the Pram Factory and people like David Williamson and Bruce Spence, but I didn't realise that, um, in fact, David was there for five minutes and women like Kerry and Helen Garner were involved in the early play Betty Can Jump. Kerry, take us back to that time. You've already mentioned that you were newly pregnant and feeling increasingly sidelined. 
in the APG? Yeah, so, well, you know, we, all, we came together to make theatre about us, about our stories, about the experience of being Australian. You know, it was a whole national movement, a movement to try and create a national dramaturgy. And But the writers that we had had a very narrow focus and it certainly didn't include women and what women there were in the plays that they wrote were, well, they were, they were minor roles for a start and, and they had... If there know, were any if there were any roles for them at all. Exactly, you know, so and that we had just got the money, we'd just been incorporated as a theatre company and an association and we had money from this the newly developed Australia Council to do this group developed piece, Marvellous Melbourne's going to be, you know, that was going to be our great sort of leaping onto the stage of um, Australian theatre. But the writers that we had, which was Hibbard and John Romerall, wrote nothing for the women. And uh, I, I was furious. I, I remember marvelling at those plays. But I must admit I too was blind I'm sorry, to, their, to their bias. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point. That was the whole point. We wanted to wake people up. We wanted to reconstruct the men's minds. Well, you were certainly woken up to the extent that you stormed out of rehearsals. I did. I did. So did Evelyn Crape. We both stormed out, but she, I think she sort of went back because she got together with Jack Hibbert after that. But, yeah, I, I was really depressed because I had such a belief in what I thought we were going to be doing, which was, you know, somehow showing the soul of who we were on the stage. But there was nothing, nothing like that that the writers and even the directors, the male directors wanted to do. And know. we should point out that you'd not given up the comfort of a good job as a teacher to play male roles. That's right. I hadn't. Okay. Now, mm. Kerry, you fell out or you felt the representation of women at the time, whether in theatre or television, mm-hmm. was of, uh, well scatterbrained, superficial or pathetic, vacuous. In fact, uh, you played one of those roles in Don's Party. Oh. (laughs) Yes, Don's Party was a strange experience because I was newly pregnant and feeling nauseous every night and I don't know if it was the play or the pregnancy. (laughs) 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 We had to eat cold pizza. But, um, yeah, I didn't enjoy that experience either, really. That was, yeah... And I must apologise for being responsible for the film version. So. <laughs> now, Kath, before the play came the uh, Carlton Women's Liberation Group, what did you discover in your research about the group? Well, I discovered that they were, after Helen um, had started the Carlton Women's Liberation Group, Kerry and a few other women from the Australian Performing Group would meet in her lounge room and there would be an American actress who had started the first women's liberation play in the US called How to Make a Woman. And she came and sat there in um, Helen's lounge room with a number of other women from Carlton and the Australian Performing Group. And um, she said, here's a phrase, as a woman I feel like, and you had to end it. Um, And at that point, you know, Kerry, as she described, was sort of furious with the men at the Australian Performing Group. Helen's partner or husband at the time, Bill Garner, was part of the the group and was at the pub or rehearsals all night. And their other friend, Mickey Allen, had just come back from being in London and she was a painter, but she would go out to work as a teacher all day while her husband would paint at home and she'd have to do her painting in a little closet and be 
there to make him tea in the evening. So they were just furious and they they suddenly realised they could describe how they felt as, as women. And at one point Helen was so afraid she felt like she had to just get up and leave but she forced herself to sit down um, and and this was obviously Helen, the school teacher, before she'd written Monkey Grip and and started. they all started talking about how they felt as women and then they moved to the pram factory to work on the play. A wonderful discovery. Women emboldened by the idea that the personal was political. Mm-hmm. Kerry, you went to a feminist conference at uh, Melbourne Uni in 71 to ask for support for the idea of a play about women. Uh, it was women. actually it was a women in labour conference at Melbourne University and... Um, So I went up and invited anybody who was interested in contributing to the ideas because it wasn't a women's theatre group at all before. There was just ad hoc uh, meetings of women who who were sort of grumbling about what was going on in their lives. It wasn't really as formal as that, but we wanted to make it... Well, I wanted to get something on in the theatre, so I, you know, wanted to get anybody who had ideas that they wanted expressed, that they wanted to research, to come along to the pram factory. We had we used the backspace at the pram factory. So it was an ad hoc group of maybe 50 women from all over Carlton. They were mostly not theatrical at all, you know, very few. There were no um, – there wasn't – it wasn't a, a sort of a formal women's theatre group at all at that stage. That came later, came years later. When I, I heard the name of uh, Betty Can Jump – I made the assumption that it was about Betty Burstall, but, of course, that's not the case. Tell us the origin of the name. No. Well, my father was a teacher and he used to bring home books for me to read before I was really a reader, you know, and there was Betty Can Jump and John Can Jump and very simple books there were. I mean, Cass found a whole other feminist interpretation of what, what she read, but the books that I read were very simple. John Can Jump, Betty Can Jump. John can run, Betty can run, see Scott run, you know. They're very, very simple stories and um, I don't know, we just thought that that would be a good title. You know, the men have already shown they can jump, they can make theatre, <laughs> so we can do it too, you know, why not? Five women were the key performers, weren't they? Mm-hmm, that's right, yeah. We had uh, Evelyn Crape. Um, Helen was never really interested in being a performer but she did contribute substantially to the show. We had Yvonne Marini, who was a wonderful performer. She um, brought some Greek heritage. She just did. As, she was just Greek. as Evelyn, who had yep. grown up with Yiddish music. Exactly. Theater, brought another dimension. Exactly, yeah. She had wonderful stories about when she had her first period, for example, her mother or her grandmother slapped her because that's the Jewish tradition. You slap the girl when she has her first period. That was what she was brought up with. Yvonne's parents were sort of traditional first generation Greeks and they didn't want her going out on her own, you know. that. So for her to be even in the theatre company was pretty amazing. Um, we had um, Jude Curing who went on to become an incredible star in Sydney after that, you know, wild woman. And um, Claire Dobbin. And who else was there? Who was the other performer? And then we had, we brought in a man. We brought in Vic Marsh who was gay but he was with Carmen Lawrence, the politician at that stage (laughs) and she was pregnant. Anyway, so he came in and he was prepared to do the onerous jobs of being, you know, a ghastly man whipping the women on the (laughs) convict ship, you know. (laughs) Kerry, tell me about uh, Mickey Allen. Oh, Mickey Allen is a wonderful painter. She was always, she was, uh, I met her when she was a student and she always had an incredible sense of colour. Now she's quite a mystical 
um, painter. Her works are quite have a sort of ethereal quality. She's very much on the spiritual path, which I am too, really. The two of us out of all of those women, and probably Yvonne Marini, we're sort of our feminism has led in some way to a much more metaphysical approach to things. There's a hint of <laughs> Mickey Allen's set designs in yes. the book. And there's the use of projections of images yeah. of women from Dali to yeah. Playboy to Carolyn Chisholm on the $5 note. She eclectic. Did, she, very eclectic. She did an incredible research job. I mean, the, the, the people that we had doing the research, were we had so much material we couldn't possibly use it all for written material and historical material. And she collected images of sculptures and paintings and um, just a broad range, you know. We had um, slides going on all through. We had people like Mirka Mora. I'm glad you mentioned Marvellous Mirka. Yes, she was wonderful. And she did this huge puppet of um, a man. I think Yvonne Marini got married <laughs> to that puppet man. <laughs> Does it survive? No, hey, what a unfortunately, shame. no. Okay. Well, nothing survives. Nothing survives from the pram factory. <laughs> okay. Now, Kerry... It was really important to have a space of your own, mm. separate from the blokes, to develop the work. Well, well, you we needed just to them out. you <laughs> needed to create at least a metaphysical space. Oh, we, we certainly created a metaphysical space, but we just rehearsed. I can't. We rehearsed. We rehearsed partly in the back theatre, which we just. We this whole building was, you know, had two huge spaces upstairs and a, two huge spaces downstairs. I think we just we rehearsed. We rehearsed in the main theatre actually for most of the time. We started off in the back theatre and we rehearsed in the. There was nothing on. It was over the Christmas break, you know, mostly. So we just rehearsed in the in that space. We but took you it needed over. the space oh, yeah. to make mistakes. Oh yeah. To work out what you were doing and to find mm-hmm. your own voice. We did. I mean, you know, nobody's going to say it's a perfectly formed play because it wasn't. But it was an explosion of energy. I think that's what did it. And it was very it touched people. It was emotionally very powerful, which is not something you could have said about any of the plays that had been done up until that point, you know, by the Pram Factory, by the APG. Now, rehearsals included group exercises mm-hmm. that came out of the uh, Carlton Women's Liberation Group. Well, tell uh, us about them. I know that they included yoga yeah, most, and meditation. Well, yeah, yoga and meditation. There was, as I said, there was no real women's liberation group at that stage. But, yeah, we did yoga. I think Helen was a great um, yoga student, as I, I was. So we all did yoga exercises every day. We did breathing exercises, meditation we had a very good work ethic. I think we, we all worked ex- extreme. We were all very committed because the ideas were so important to us. So we, Now, the processes know. we were describing were radical then, but I mm. guess they're uh, these days quite often used in the theatre. It depends who it is. Yeah, I always use them, yeah, but not everybody does. You know. Go back to that uh, statement, as a woman I feel like. Oh, yes. It was very powerful. We had a range of of responses to that. It was always to find an image. Was the image was the important thing? I think um, Yvonne Marini said she felt like a a cushion that had to that was sat on, like an air cushion that sort of farted when someone sat on it. <laughs> um, Helen's was a, as a woman. I feel like a sharp, glittering blade in a sheath. Look, that's <laughs> so good. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> With men, I feel like a very sharp, glittering blade. 
that's only partly out of its sheath. It glitters and glitters. <laughs> they don't see it, but I don't dare to show that blade to come right out of the sheath because I am afraid of how fierce and joyful it will be to stab and stab and stab. So I don't show it. I hold it. Somehow I hold it back. But it's there, glittering. Apart from anything else, what a wonderful piece of writing. I know. I think we all totally resonated with that. And and then she has let it out of the sheath, I think. In the intervening intervening years. Well and truly. (laughs) So, Kerry, late in the piece, you decide to cast this one bloke, Vic Marsh. Mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned that he was from Perth and he was, uh, well, Carmen Lawrence's beau, but tell me a bit more about him because he was obviously quite a brave fellow. Oh, he was a brave fellow. He was, was, when we met him in Perth, we, the Prime Factory, the APG had our first sort of professional tour. We went to the Perth Festival in 19... 70 it must have been and um, we met him and he loved the work that we were doing he loved the exuberance of it he loved the fact that it was Australian and he was an actor he was a writer I think he was a journalist and he was sort of an activist in lots of ways and so we um, we sort of adopted him he adopted us and we adopted him we even paid his fare to if should he ever want to come over to Melbourne because we would love, would have loved, you know, we were always trying to invite people that we felt were were on, you know, on the same track as us. And, and uh, sometimes he was accompanied by a certain 23-year-old uh, psychology uh, tutor in Carmen. Yes. And Carmen would watch rehearsals. She would watch rehearsals. She would always have something very precise and to say. But she didn't offer very much because she didn't want to be too involved in it. She was too busy sort of being pregnant but... Um, <laughs> A lot she, of pregnancies around at the time. I know. Well, it was a very fertile time, you know. And she was involved <laughs> in the women's electoral lobby, setting that up in Beatrice yes. Faust's house too. Yes, she was yeah. very active politically. She didn't really want to know about the theatre, I don't think. Kerry, the show opens on the 26th of January 1972. Mm. Mm. A a total coincidence that mm. Betty's opening scene was of a convict ship's arrival in Australia. Yes, the fact that it's a, a convict ship, because that, that came later, didn't it? That wasn't when Cook came out here. But um, that was the most powerful scene. We had, I think probably that was, that grounded the whole piece because it, we weren't really, we didn't feel um, qualified to say anything much about Indigenous, we didn't say anything about Indigenous women at all because we didn't know any and we didn't think it was our remit really to, to thought it would have been... You, you could know. grow up in Melbourne and never see an Aboriginal that's face. Right. That's right. The, the first person I met ever was Jack Charles, Uncle Jack Charles, and that was years later. But... Um, so, so that scene was really horrific. Scene. It was a scene of you know women being treated extremely badly, whipped and beaten, being sick on the boat, you know, being exhausted. It was a very powerful scene that we never we we, we never really found the sort of the depth that we'd got in rehearsal with that. But nevertheless, it sort of hung over the whole piece. This is where we began. We began as convict women in in Melbourne. This is Late Night Live and we are staging a revolution. We're discussing a book of that name written by Kath Kenny and Kath's uh, sitting in the studio with me. And uh, we also, of course, have the marvellous Kerry. How did the structure of the play turn out, Kerry, insofar as it had a structure because the process was so organic? It was organic and so the structure was organic. There was no narrative arc 
well, there was there was quite a lot of theatre at that stage, like the Living Theatre and even Grotowski and people like that were doing plays that were more. Um, they were sort of expressionist in, in, in lots of ways. They weren't really. They weren't about following a narrative arc. A lot of things were dispensed with, and one of them was the proscenium arch. Well, we hardly ever we didn't have a proscenium arch in the pram. In fact, it was always it was a very fluid space. We could rearrange the seating. We had we had I think for Betty Can Jump we had seating along one side of the theatre. It was and a above, comparatively uh, new experience for audiences. Though. Well, it theater, was because, Theatre yeah. in the round. Oh, yeah, we always had it in the round. We either had people, the, the, the acting right in the middle of an audience, as we did at La Mama, or we had audience on two sides or three sides or, you know, it, we had, I think we had audience only on one side because we used most of the stage. We I, used I the remember mezzanine. Pram Factory reviews. The audience were often brought into the production, albeit reluctantly. I suddenly recall an enormous penis <laughs> made of cloth being handed around the audience. I can remember being sorely embarrassed and not wanting to touch it. The oh, costumes. <laughs> now, the costumes were confrontational. Yeah, well, we had the most, probably the most confrontational costume that we had was a little strap-on dildo <laughs> that um, the women loved to use, you know, and they sort of had this, we had this great ochre scene in a pub where they had these enormous penises strapped on. <laughs> we, all, we sort of got our own back with that scene, you know. Look, Kerry, this is a family program for heaven's sake. <laughs> I'm sorry. But the costume I was thinking of was... Uh, that housewife, that grotesque yeah. image of a housewife, a giant wedding ring around her neck, a gag with a smiling mouth painted on it over her mouth, blinkers on the sides of her eyes. Rubber gloves all over her. <laughs> and, of course, uh, a bra with baby's milk bottles and plastic nipples attached. <laughs> yes. That's the life of a woman, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now, Kerry, the collective got some funds from the APJ, but uh, it was the Australia Council, as it said. Kat, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, I think that um, it was an era where the arts was emerging, but it was still small enough that they could quickly get money without a lot of bureaucracy and put on experimental plays, unlike now where you kind of have to say what the purpose will be, what the outcome will be. It was about experimenting and you were allowed to fail. And the critics, um, and Betty Can Jump did get a, a little bit of arts funding I discovered in, oh. sorry, arts council funding I discovered in the newsletters. Um, and the critics said, look, this was a really raw and amateurish, amateurish play, but it was powerful. It was um, speaking to women about their lives. They came up after the play crying. Mm. So it gave um, people who weren't necessarily professionals a chance to really learn and experiment and do some new things. Kerry, how did women seeing the play react? Bugger the critics. What was the response from women in your audiences? Well, I, as you know, as Kath has mentioned, they, to, as far as I can recall, they loved, they. They they appreciated the fact that it was so personal. They appreciated the humour. It was very funny. We had a lot of jokes in there, which I, of course I can't remember now. But uh, and it was very physical. It was um, it was a very inclusive um, atmosphere. So um, and very joyful. The women in it were were full of energy and full of fun. So. That was uh, Jack Hibbard was the one in the pram. The men in the pram factory were a little bit worried about it. 
They didn't know they whether they were going quite, to like it. Though it was more than that. They were quite hostile. They were very hostile. Yeah. Jack Hibbert said it was mawkish and sentimental, which I took as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we, we were dealing with emotions and I think that's important. And don't forget, Kerry, there was one man at one of those early meetings who was running around with a script about men and women oh, yeah. saying um, he wouldn't sit down in the circle. He said, damn it all. How will you get anywhere if you don't accept help from us, meaning the men? And that's when you said, okay, we, we need to close the um, rehearsals to men. And that did cause some ructions because the Pram Factory philosophy was all about openness and democracy yes. and, and the men didn't quite understand why you needed. Nonetheless, one of the things this your collective energy did was start to change the behaviour mm. of men at the, at the Pram Factory. That's right because, and, and I, you know, we had... Of course, you know, we had, we sort of, it would, people would become conscious of the need to have more, more work about women and then that would sort of slip away and we'd have, we'd retreat into something which was not acceptable. So it sort of came in waves, but it, but it certainly was the first theatre in Australia that I know of that actually took account of the fact that women had something important to say and had an important role in the theatre. Kath, the women's women's marches leading up to the 2021 and the emergence of new feminist leaders like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins shows there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah, and one of the the reasons I um, was so interested to write this book was because I think we keep forgetting our history. So just mm. as Kerry and the um, women at Betty Can Jump had to go and rediscover these stories of Vita Goldstein and Louisa Lawson. I had to discover their stories and, and thankfully Kerry had kept all these records and diaries of the production. Um, and I think the word revolution for me came to mean not just um, a one-off big dramatic change but the way in which we keep going around in circles and keep dealing with the same battles. So a lot of Betty Can Jump, although it was funny, dealt with um, male violence, starting with, you know, British officers and the way they were whipping convict women coming off the ships. And I went to the um, the march at Parliament House where Brittany Higgins spoke and Scott Morrison wouldn't come out and he mm. said, you are so lucky um, he said this in Parliament, that you wouldn't be shot. And I just Absolutely. thought, here we come again. Yeah, this is sort of yeah. found, we're founded on this, a country that's founded on violence towards women. And mm. this is such a low bar that Scott Morrison was uh, reaching He was for. very attracted to low bars, I think. Yeah. <laughs> now, Kerry, you've almost completed a memoir yes. with the provisional title of, guess what, beloved listeners, <laughs> Betty Jumps Out of the Pram. That's right. How far advanced are you and well, when are you going to come on and have a chat well, about I, it? I, well, I'd love to. I'm, t I'm just having – I've just uh, been dealing with an editor now who she thinks it's almost cooked. So uh, I reckon I'll have it completed in the next couple of months and I'll get an editor and I'll get a publisher. It's been wonderful to have you both in the studio. I've been talking to Kath Kenny, author of Staging a Revolution, When Betty Rocked the Pram, published by Upswell. Kath is also an associate member of the Centre for Media History. And Kerry Dwyer, actor, theatre and film director and co-founder of the ABG, the Australian Performing Group. 
It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.